Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Shalom, everybody. Good to see you. Good to see you. Jeremy, is it good to see number one? Yeah, very good to see you guys. Shalom, everybody. Tehila's <laughs> here also. She's on the side here. She's waiting to be called into duty. Yeah, so uh, we this is an intense fellowship. There's a lot going on in Israel. There's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot going on at our farm in our corner of Judea. And so we want to share all of that with you. And we're just sitting here literally up up at the moment of it starting and saying, who should go first? Who should talk first? Who should do what? And so we decided, Jeremy, you're going first this time, then Tehillah. And then for some reason, I keep doing this to myself and I'm going to go after Tehillah, which is number one rule. Never go after Tehillah. Impossible to follow Tehillah. But for whatever reason, I need to be humbled. Perhaps at some point I will be raised up after the humility that I keep having. So anyways, Jeremy, you go first and I'm going to let Tehillah sit here okay. next to you. Well, I'll do because what I she's going. That's fine. So I got it. Thank you. Okay. You, you, you sit there. Thank you. By yourself and yeah. then... All right. Shalom, everybody. Um, as you can tell, it's a little. The... Oh, I already said I should sit next to you. Yeah, you're next. It's no. a little bad. Just, yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. A lot going on here, everyone. Um, so, okay. I, I, I'm just trying to get a little bit of background. Um, the last uh, week has been very intense around the farm. I'm not going to give over too many details, but our surrounding is becoming more volatile. There's more attempted, um, let's just call it like it is, more attempted terror attacks all around the farm right now. And so Ari and I are responding accordingly. So is the army. So are the, the villagers that live around us. Um, just for example, in the last hour, there were 15 rockets fired from Lebanon into Israel just this last hour. And so we don't know if it's necessarily connected to the Shifa hospital, which is one of the Hamas headquarters that the IDF now is slowly but surely evacuating the people and going after the terrorists that are in there. And maybe this is sort of backup that's coming. It's unclear. But what is clear is that um, it seems as though this conflict is not going to stay located in the Gaza Strip. It is spreading. And um, and we're feeling that. We're feeling it. Definitely the, the tense realities around the farm are sensed by everyone. And so uh, what I want to do today is um, I want to talk a little bit about God. That's what I want to do. That's what's on my heart. I feel like God needs to be brought a little bit more into this um, reality in Israel. You know, there's so many uh, pundits and, and, and speakers and analysts and journalists, and everyone's talking about their opinions about everything. But everything that happens in Israel is connected to God. And you, it's like the separation of church and state in Israel is like taking the water out of the pool. It's not a pool anymore. Everything that's happening here is a spiritual battle, a physical battle, it's a biblical battle. It's all intertwined. One of the verses in Tehillim says like this, From my enemies, I shall become smarter. And the sages of Israel say that you can actually learn Israel's chosenness from Israel's enemies. And when you look about that, some people say, like, how can you even believe in God in such a scenario? Look what happened to Israel on October 7th. I mean, where was God? Where is this? Where is that? And I'm looking at Israel's enemies and the people who stand with Israel's enemies. And most of the time, since the Garden of Eden, good and bad has been interwoven within each other. Within every good, there's a little bit of bad. Within every bad, there's a little bit of good. But as we come now to this, this end in our history so far and transitioning to a new era, the good and the bad is actually being separated out. There's never been a clearer uh, line dividing between good and evil. There's the side of the jihadists, rapists, murderers, uh, kidnappers of toddlers that are still holding hostages, <laughs> that are still holding our babies underground. And then there's the people that are siding with those rapist murderers. And then there's the people that are trying to free the hostages and fight against these murderers. And it's like, you know, look at the Jews' enemies, whether it be Nazis that attacked the Jews in the last generation, imagine living under their rule, 
Or imagine living under the rule of Hamas. Imagine if Iran and Hamas and ISIS and the, the jihad won the war and they actually defeated the West. Imagine living under that civilization. So yes, it's always, as soon as evil arises in the world, it attacks the Jew first. But note that when evil arises in the world, it attacks the Jewish people first. It's like, it's like, how do you not see God in that? I mean, of all of the people, the Jews are less than a quarter of 1%, 0.2 of 1% of the world population. And when evil arises in the world, it's like attracted to the Jews like a magnet. And you can become very wise from looking at our enemies. You can know the truth of goodness by encountering the truth of, of evil in the world. And so as I'm watching some of these people that are siding with the Hamas, it's almost like they have these like glass eyes and they're just so filled with hatred that it makes you believe that the Jews must be good. If you look at our enemies, the enemies of evil are attacking the forces of good. Now we're just, you know, it's, we're just the front lines because they're after all of us. They're after all of us. They're after you in England. They're after you in Australia. They're after you in New York and Los Angeles. And so we're just, they, you know, it's like Pearl Harbor's right down the road, folks. If you don't know that, then wake up. I mean, they are not just after Israel, and they're not just after the Gaza Strip, and they're not just after Judea and Samaria. They are after London, and they're after Berlin, and they're after America, and the evil force that rises in the world. That's just the way the mechanics of this world work. It attacks the Jew first, and you'd think the world would be smart enough now that when some um, movement immediately attacks the Jew, I mean, right now in London, right now, What's trending in social media is death to all Jews. That's actually trending in London now. That is the most popular tweet that's happening in London now. <laughs> Hashtag death to all Jews. And so when that happens, so yes, there are Jews in London, but all the others that are non-jihadist Muslims in London, watch out. Because once the Jews leave London, they're coming for you. But the second thing that I wanted to talk about was at the very, very beginning of the war. I haven't really talked about this, but because, you know, Ari and I, we live alone on a mountain, I every once in a while have an opportunity to just kind of like walk off into the wilderness and just have moments with myself and moments with God. And there was at one point where I was really like, you know, shaking my fists at heaven, really calling God out, being like, you know, how did you let this happen to us? How did you let this happen to us? We've been burned. We've been raped. We've been killed. Like, how did you let this happen to us? From these forces of evil, yes, maybe we weren't perfect, but we like, look at this. And immediately it was, I gave you tanks. I gave you airplanes. I gave you the most sophisticated technologies to uproot the evil from the land. Why are you turning to me? It's like there's a part in the Torah where God says, Matitzakelai, why are you calling to me? Go, travel, Tiso. Just like why there's like a time for prayer. There's also a time for action. And right now, the Holocaust, there could really be theological questions there. But at this stage in Jewish history, the entire responsibility is on our shoulders to defend not only the people of Israel, but the good people of the entire world. We've been given every um tool at our disposal to protect ourselves. And I think one of the tools that's really lacking that we have not been using is actually prayer. You know, I I, I, I wish that I had a larger microphone in Israel, but I would like to propose a new peace plan. And my new, I mean, because we've tried everything in this country. We've tried to offer them land. We've tried to offer them money. We've even given them guns. That's how crazy the Israeli left is. And I'm like, let's try a new peace plan. What about a mass movement of teshuva? We've tried everything else. Can all of Israel actually repent? Can we just call on everyone in Israel to actually call out to God? Let's let's just, why not try? We've tried everything else. Can we just try to see, like, if that would, can we, like, I don't know, I don't know what to say, put God in a corner here, like force God to like reveal himself. Like if we all call out to God, maybe that would actually be a better peace plan than all the other nutty things we've done, like giving our enemies guns to attack us with. 
And I'll tell you, this is a story that was published by one of the soldiers that learned in Yeshivat Ramat Gan, which is one of the most unique yeshivas in Israel because it's placed like right in the heart around Tel Aviv in that area. And their idea was to kind of be a light in secular Israel. And so this was posted on the bulletin board of that yeshiva by one of the soldiers that's fighting in Gaza. So I have the letter here with me in Hebrew, and I'm going to read it to you and just translate it automatically into English. And here's what it says. Yesterday, one of my boys, one of our friends, one of the Hevre, uh, called me in and told me this story. He's from Givati. He's from the infantry unit, Givati. Last night, we were in the middle of battles. I was in the headquarters, and all of a sudden, my commander comes up to me and says, I have a very important mission for you. You're religious, right? With a kippah on my head. Go, pray now. And I said, what? Uh, this is a totally secular commander. He lives with his partner in Tel Aviv somewhere. And he tells me, listen, what I'm telling you right now, this is a time only for prayers. For the longest time, we have two armed personnel carriers that have broken down in the middle of an open area in Aza. This could be a catastrophe. We are not able to fix them. Go pray. Or they'll fix them, or the Hamas might not attack us. Pray now we are in a dire situation. It took me time to process what was happening. And at all, I, I wasn't able to concentrate. And, and I immediately went out to Lit Boded to go out and just talk to God. I, ted, I said, Hashem, these are your boys. They're here fighting on behalf of your people. Let there not be a desecration of your name. And these things happen. I wasn't able to concentrate, but okay, I did my best. A quarter of an hour later, I came back to the headquarters. As I was asking for God to hear my prayers as I gave them over, I got to the headquarters and the commander comes to me, filled up with light. And he says to me, you do not understand what has happened here. A minute after you left, the first armed personnel carrier was fixed and started working. A few moments later, another one was fixed. And now all of them are fixed and they're moving toward battle. You are not going into Aza. I need you right here for you to just pray. And that was the story that happened. And, you know, it's like slowly but surely what we're seeing in Israel is a real awakening, an awakening among Israelis from all walks of life. The most sold item in Israel right now are tzitzit. They've just, there's not enough kids to tie the knots in the strings because so many people are feeling compelled to wear tzitzit now. The soldiers want them as guards and protection and the people that are praying for their soldiers want them as guards and protection. And so you're seeing what's happening here. Um, it seems as though we are just being brought to a place where two things are gonna happen. One, the Jewish people are coming to grips that we are Jews. And what does that mean for someone who's denied their Jewish identity their whole life? It's forcing them to come to grips. They're watching the marches in London and the demonstrations in New York, and they're yelling, gas the Jew, death to all Jews. And these Israelis are like, I don't even really identify as a Jew. I'm sort of just a human and Israeli, and I don't even know what that means, but they hate us as Jews. And it somehow taps into this intergenerational hatred for thousands of years. And now it's like, well, what is it about us that they hate so much? And look at who hates us. Like the dreck of all humans, the worst of society, the most evil, that must mean something good about me. And so the first thing that's happening is the Jews are being forced to come to grips with their own Jewish identity. And the second thing that's happening, whether we like it or not, is that Israel is standing alone. The pressure is mounting slowly but surely. Calls for ceasefires, more and more pressure, more and more news articles about the Gazans, more and more news articles. And in some ways, when you think about the process of redemption, last generation, we had to deal with Asaph, and we dealt with the Western world at their worst. 
and it manifested as the Nazis, the pinnacle peak of Western civilization, the most advanced society, the most advanced scientists, the Beethoven and Bach and all of the culture of Western civilization coming out of Berlin. And then Aesop went and just attacked the Jew, the evil spirit that came out. And remarkably, Germany today, even more than other European countries, is standing relatively strong alongside Israel. Like what a fixing may be happening there with that relationship. And before Esav is Ishmael. And imagine the pathway that's happening now. We had to do something with Yishmael, fix something there, go through a battle there. And now we are one step closer to Abraham's children, Yitzhak and Ishmael, fighting right now inside the land of Israel. All of the Arabs around us are kind of coming together. And now... It's like a final, final battle. But where is it bringing us back to? It's bringing us back to Abraham. And Abraham was the man who stood alone. He said, all of you child-sacrificing idolaters are wrong, and I am right. And so Israel, confronted with the evil of Hamas and what they did to our children and what they're still doing to our children and our elderly, have to have enough courage and resolve to say, all of you are wrong and I am right. And the Jewish people alone will stand for the truth. Because when you stand for the truth, you stand with God. And that's this dual process that's happening to every Jew on an individual level and to the Jewish people collectively as a nation in Israel. And so the state of Israel is going through a process and the mystical writings of Judaism would say it like this, that the, the peel comes before the fruit. The state of Israel is the peel. And now slowly that peel is being peeled away to get to the fruit. But God's vision for Israel was not the modern state of Israel. I mean, the state of Israel. We're not even a country. We're a state. Forget about a kingdom. We're a state. It's embarrassing. Is, is Germany a state? It's Germany's a country. England's a country. The state of Israel. And so that's clearly not the vision of the prophets. But what's happening is that is the peel that comes before the fruit. And the peel is slowly being peeled away and a new fruit is emerging. And that's what's happening now here in Israel. And... You know, for the world to say, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That's what they're saying in all of these marches. What that means is they're calling for Jewish genocide. They're calling for all of the Jews in Israel to be wiped out. They're calling for all of us to be killed. After we experienced what we experienced with our hostages still being held by the Hamas terrorist organization. No demonstrations are calling for the Hamas to surrender and release hostages. They're calling for the destruction of all Jews, for the annihilation of all Jews. And so the separation is happening now between good and between evil. And, you know, I don't know if it's going to be facial recognition or if it's going to be posts on Facebook, but a record is being kept right now for every lover of Israel and every hater of Israel. Maybe it's simply in God's mind, but I think it's actually going to be really provable in this world as well, where everyone will be able to hold up either a badge of honor or a real mark of shame. And there will be judgment, judgment for those that came against God's chosen people that could not differentiate between good and evil and who stood on the side of evil, where Israel has just wanted to live in peace and yet just riddled with terror and war. And this is the beginning of the war that will end all wars. And so choose your sides wisely because a record is being kept. And so this is the last war. Ishmael was the last one. You know, in Tehillah's Torah uh, a few weeks ago, she quoted a mystical writing that Ishmael was circumcised at the age of 13. And it says that he will have a schut, a merit, to the land of Israel for 1,300 years. 
And if you just Google really quickly, when was the Arabian conquest of Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, you'll see it lasted almost to the day, 1,300 years until the Jewish people came back in 1948 and established the state of Israel. And so there's some things that are so glaringly true. And when people say, oh, the Jewish people, you stole the land. From... There's just never been a stronger claim of a people to a land than the Jewish people to Jerusalem. Every rock you pick up in Israel, you find Jewish writing. Every name of every city you find in the Bible. I mean, the interconnectedness between the Jewish people and the land of Israel. It's almost like I don't want to even have the debate because it's ridiculous to even give it credibility, because there is no people in the world that is more connected to the land of Israel than the people of Israel. And so the truth is now revealed for the world to choose. And so what's so marvelous about this fellowship is that we are a living example of the way the world should be, of what the world could be, and we're living it right now, in this time, in this transitional period. And so we should be blessed to know that as we're going closer and closer from Esau to Ishmael, all the way back to Avraham, that we should have the clarity, the courage, and the emunah to stand alone like Abraham, to say, all of you demonstrators, the hundreds of thousands of you around the world, all of you are wrong, and we are right. And so with that, I am very good at saying that she is always right, because most of the time, she is. So I'm going to introduce Tehillah for you guys. She's been working on this um, Torah that she's going to teach for quite a while now. And it is beyond challenging for her to find the time, come here, broadcast. And so she loves you all. We love her. And with that, I will pass it over to Tehillah Gimpel. Hey, guys. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Hey, so great to see all of your faces. Um, so, you know, I apologize. It's been a little bit of a uh, time. Uh, I haven't been able to put out so many videos. I don't have any actual good excuse other than not having really anything to say. And I don't want to talk to you guys if I don't feel like I have something to say. But sometimes Hashem just speaks so loud. <laughs> I don't have much choice. And, um, you know, so so here I am. Uh, in the spirit of the videos uh, and the sort of Torah I've been trying to give over uh, since the beginning of the war, kind of looking in the Bible for the meaning of the word Hamas and seeing what that means in different places in the Torah and how our biblical heroes struggled in the face of Hamas, which in Hebrew is just this, you know, this horrible, horrendous evil. And, you know, to try to draw inspiration from them and, you know, in our struggle in the face of what seems to be this you know, insurmountable evil in our own times. And I want to focus back on Psalms because at the end of the day, like Jeremy said, it's really, you know, for those of us who can't be in physical battle, being in prayer battle is really the most uh, that we can do. And I've been getting inspiration lately from my little, um, from my little boy, Noam, you know, Noam, he, uh, you know, he'll be playing and their kids kind of live their normal life and he'll be playing soccer or working in the garden but then suddenly I'll see this sort of sadness come over his face. And then he'll just say, Ima, can I, can I light a candle for the hostages? And, you know, it's really heartbreaking. And every single night when I finish telling him his bedtime story, he'll ask me for the book of Psalms. He'll ask me for Tehillim. And every night I find him with his light on in his room with his little book of Psalms open because he fell asleep reading Psalms for the hostages and for the soldiers. And I just thought that was so precious. So I said, okay, Noam, you've inspired me. We're going to focus a little bit on the Psalms. And I want to, today, if you guys want to just like grab your Psalms, if you have it nearby, I want to look at Psalm 11. And Psalm 11 is the very first time that we see the word Hamas in the, in the book of Tehillim, in, in uh, Psalms. And so my go-to was to open Hanan Porat's book on Tehillim. He wrote a book called Lichyot Tehillim, To Live the Psalms. And he usually has really nice insights on the meanings of the words. But here, you know, I wanted, I felt like drawn, I felt drawn to this, um, I felt drawn to this particular psalm. And then I open up the book and what does he say? 
Hanan Porat was fighting for Gush Katif. He was in Gush Katif in Aza, in Gaza, before it was evacuated. And he was one of the last people left in Gush Katif after everybody had been evacuated. And he was in the synagogue of Neve de Kalim, one of the last places of Gush Katif to be destroyed. And he says in his book, I'm sitting in the synagogue. I'm pretty much the last Jew in the Gaza Strip, this is in 2005 in the disengagement. And he said, I felt drawn to read Psalm 11. And so I said, okay, that's a confirmation that this is what I'm supposed to be studying. And he said that this Psalm gave him strength at that moment. And it was so striking. But even with all of that, I was just having trouble getting up my strength to try to really dig into this. And then my birthday rolled along last week. And thank you, Nancy, for your kind wishes. I just saw them. Hi, Nancy. <laughs> And it was my birthday, and I wasn't really in a birthday mood. And my beloved sister-in-law, Avigail, who I hope you guys are following her amazing work that she's doing during this war, she knows me so well. She goes, I know you're not going to want a birthday present for your birthday. So I sent you a Dvar Torah. I sent you a Torah, and I see a Word file in my WhatsApp, and I open it up. You guys are going to fall off your chairs. I open it up, and I hadn't said anything about this to her. I open it up, and she goes, I wrote you a Torah on Psalm 11. <laughs> Because I know you've been having a hard time making videos and making Torahs. Maybe this will get your engine going. I said, oh my gosh, okay, Hashem, I hear you loud and clear. And then my wonderful friend, Brenna, and my wonderful friend, Deborah, they both asked me to do another video on Psalms. So it is a collaborative work, and I have to thank all of my friends that have been pushing me forward. So if you guys are with me, I would love if you could open up Psalm 11. I just want to study it because when we study it, then we can really understand the meaning and pray it together, but not just from reading the words, but from actually understanding it. So the first verse says, Lam David, to the conductor of David. Do you guys know what it means when it says to the conductor? There are about 50 Psalms that start with to the conductor. It means that in the temple, in the temple, that was something that was read with, uh, there was something that was sung with a with like an orchestra and there was a conductor. And this is something that was read in the, in the actual uh, temple with beautiful music. So this is to the conductor of David. Now, he says, I took refuge in the Lord. How do you say to my soul, wander from your mountain, you bird? That's an interesting opening. David starts out by saying that he takes refuge in, refuge in Hashem. Now, what's interesting about this particular Psalm is that it has no actual prayer in it. If you look carefully at Psalm 11, David's not actually asking Hashem for anything. He's actually sharing with us his inner dialogue about how to exist in his emuna, in his faith, in Hashem, in the face of a really difficult reality. He's straightening himself out and straightening us out, not the external reality, but actually how we maintain our relationship with Hashem in the face of a difficult reality. So David starts with this fundamental problem. How do you say to my soul, wander from your mountain, O bird? What is the problem that he's facing? He's facing a problem that everyone keeps telling him to get off of his land. He's saying, everyone is saying, get off your land. You know, the, the sages tried to figure out which, you know, they're, they're saying to him, you know, if you have all these problems, but if you would just get off your land, just fly away, everything will be okay. And you know, the sages try to figure out which point in David's life this is taking place. And in the Meiri, Rabbi Menachem Meiri says this is happening in the 23rd chapter of the first book of Samuel. Now, this is amazing because in the 23rd chapter of the first book of Samuel, it's when David and his men go out of hiding from Saul because they hear, get this, that the Philistines are about to attack a community called Keilah a city bordering near the Philistines. You can't make this stuff up. Like we know that the Philistines were mainly in Israel in the area that's now the Gaza Strip, right? And then they're attacking communities that are next to the Gaza, next to this Philistine kind of Gaza Strip in order uh, uh, to terrorize them. And David takes his men to go save them. Does this sound like it's speaking to our times, guys? You can't, you can't make this up, right? David takes his men to go save them. And then what happens? Their response is so ungrateful because they basically give him over to Saul after he saves them from these Gazan Philistines. And it's such a painful thing for David. He's essentially protecting people from these horrible enemies and they turn him over and he has to run away and become a fugitive again. Imagine reading this when you're Hanan Parat and you're the last person in Gush Katif, you're the last Jew in Gush Katif 
when the settlements that were there in Gaza were there to protect the cities around the Gaza Strip by creating a presence there that wouldn't allow terror organizations to take hold and the self-sacrifice of the people who went to live in the most dangerous areas in order pr to protect other Israelis were then treated so horribly and thrown out of their homes and turned into fugitives. It's like, you can't make this up. And now what's so interesting is the word that David uses in Hebrew to say that the bird, you know, they tell him to fly away like a bird is nudi, which is in the singular. But the text, so this is one of the several examples, there's, you know, a few places in the Torah where the written word is different than the way we pronounce it. The way it's pronounced is nudi in the singular, but the text actually says nudu, which is plural. You will all be told to fly away from your land, to fly away from your mountain. So it's like the verse is already hinting to us that there's going to be a double story here. There's going to be David's single story in the singular, but it's going to be all of your story, Israel, time and time again. It's the singular and the plural at the same time. This is something we're going to face not only in David's personal life, but in our life. And we feel it so much now when you see the proportion of soldiers that are falling to protect Israel right now is so unbelievably, noticeably, disproportionately made of settlers and believers from, Jew from Judea and Samaria, the ones who are the most vilified so wrongly as if we are the ones endangering peace and turned out to be the only ones who properly identified the real danger posed by these terrorist organizations. And now instead of saying, I told you so, those are the same people that are running out most courageously and giving their lives to save people once again. And the world and even people in Israel still talk about turning these, you know, turning these very heroes over from their homes. Like, you know, get out of Judea, guys. It's the singular and the plural that happened in David's life, and it's happening over and over in our national story. And so the basic problem being faced in these, you know, in this story is, okay, you gotta, you know, get off of your land. And, you know, it, it, it feels so familiar because like we finally have our place to be Jews in Judea. And they're just like, you know, when, when Jews lived in Europe, it said, oh, why are you guys wandering around Europe? Find your own place. And once we find our own place, they're telling us, why are you in somebody else's place? Go back to Europe, go back to Brooklyn. And, you know, we're like these birds constantly being shuffled off of our land as if for our own good. And now in verse second, it in verse two, excuse me, it says, for behold, the wicked tread the bow. They set their arrow on the bowstring to shoot in the dark at the upright of heart. And then at three, it says, for the foundations were destroyed. What did the righteous man do? Think about what David is saying here. He's saying they're shooting in the dark at the upright of heart and the foundations are being destroyed. There's a feeling right now in the world, I'm sure you guys feel it too, that the foundations don't make sense anymore in life. Like the obvious good is being like seen as bad. The obvious bad is being seen as good. And we live in a world where Iran is the head of the UN Human Rights Council and where the president of Syria who just killed half a million of his own citizens is condemning Israel for not being humane enough. And Israel is offering humanitarian aid to help evacuate the babies of the terrorists. And you know, and then David asks, what can the righteous man do? The arrows being shot at the upright in the heart of darkness. You know, most of the battles in Gaza are taking place at night. And every morning we wake up and get, you know, the count of how many of our righteous people are dead. It's so obvious that Hashem is taking the best ones. Do you guys get that sense? It's just like Hashem is taking the best ones. And it's it's so unbelievable the people that are being killed here, sometimes they don't even seem like real people. Like I'm a good person. I try my best, you know, like I give charity and I try to be a good mom, right? And then, you know, I sometimes will meet like a really righteous person. That's like one in a hundred, right? How many really super duper righteous people do you meet? It feels like every person that's falling for us here are mythically level good people. Like, you know, yesterday we heard the terrible news that Yossi Hershkowitz died. His son is a counselor in our children's youth group. He's a 44-year-old school principal and a Torah teacher who's also an unbelievable, was also an unbelievable military warrior and a gifted musician who played violin for sick people in the hospital. I mean, could you be more David-like than being a musician who's also a Torah teacher, who's also a warrior? Like, what are we going to do with that? You know, and, and each story is, the, it just seems like there's not a normal distribution of sacrifice and the terrorists are shooting in the dark, like the verse says, but somehow the arrows are striking in the dark at the most upright of heart, exactly as the Psalm says. And what is David's question? It's not really like a theoretical, philosophical question of, oh, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? He's actually saying, is there even a point of being righteous? Sometimes it feels so hopeless. Like, why are we in this fight? What should righteous people do? And the verse says in number four, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord in his, is in his throne in heaven. His eyes see 
and his pupils try the sons of man. In verse four, David tries to tell us, you know, Hashem does feel like he's so far away. He's like he's in heaven, but he's seeing this. He's with us and he's watching us. But where does that go? How does that express itself? You know, we kind of hope that the bottom line is going to be, don't worry, guys, good stuff is coming. Everything's going to be okay. Everything's going to feel good soon. But that's not what David tells us. Look at verses five and six. He says, the Lord tries the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the ones who love violence. And here we see for the first time in the book of Psalms, the word Hamas is God hates the ones who love Hamas and he shall rain upon the wicked charcoal, fire, brimstone and burning wind. And that will be the portion of their cup. So David is not selling us a bit, you know, a bill of goods. He's saying, yeah, bad is going to come to the evil ones, but not through any easy road for the righteous ones, because it says Hashem is going to test the righteous Meaning, don't be surprised that the hardest challenges come to the most righteous people. That's built in to the system. It's not going to be easy for the righteous, but Hashem hates the wicked. And the ones who love violence, the ones who love Hamas, Hashem will rain down fire upon them. There's not really any better way to describe what's happening to Hamas right now than fire hailing down on the evildoers. But the price that we're paying is so unbelievably difficult. It's such a difficult test for the most righteous people of Israel. And as I'm reading this, I'm asking myself, is David even comforting himself? Because it sounds like there's not really much difference in the outcome. And he says the good time, the good people are going to go through rough times, and that's going to be, you know, a really tough test for them. And the bad people are going to go through rough times, and that's going to be really tough for them. Well, then what's the difference? Right? The answer comes in the last verse. He says, For the Lord is righteous, he loves the workers of righteousness whose faces approve the straight way. That's how it, how it's translated. But in Hebrew, it actually says, Hashem loves. Hashem is righteous and he loves the righteous and the upright people will be able to see his countenance. Meaning Hashem says those who follow the straight path and choose righteousness, it's not because they're going to get something out of it, some sort of self-interest. The reward will be to see Hashem's face. What does that mean? It means you will have a relationship with Hashem. You will feel Hashem's love. If everything was clear in the world, if it was good to be good and bad to be bad and everything was self-evident, we would just be like, you know, doing the good for the sake of the reward. The world is set up so that the reward is not apparent. And the outcome of being good is not that everything's going to go great for you, but that you'll have an actual, honest, real love relationship with Hashem. And that's something that we're really seeing now. And Jeremy started to mention it as well. In the nature of things, you would imagine that people would want to connect with Torah when it's worthwhile, when things are going good for the Jewish people. Like in the book of Esther, it says that when we won, a lot of people in Persia started trying to be Jewish when the Jews were on top, but when we're on the bottom, that's when everyone's supposed to jump ship, right? You didn't see a lot of uh, people becoming Jewish when Haman was about to kill us, but that's not how the true lovers of Hashem act. The true lovers of Hashem come out of the woodwork when the things are worst for us. And as Jeremy said, we've never in our lives seen so many people coming back to Torah right now at this time. You know, there's a it's like the time that you would most want to be running away from being Jewish when things are so bad in Israel and so bad in the world. Isn't it a great time to like go hide and hide your Judaism? In Israel, one of the most famous filmmakers and writers, Omer Barak, he's a best-selling author, so secular that he doesn't even call, he, up until now, he didn't even call himself Jewish. He only called himself Israeli. He wrote the most moving thing. He said, these days, the only word that comes to my mind, the only words that come to my mind are, I am a Jew. For the first time in my life, I realized that it doesn't matter how hard I try, I can't run away. For the first time in my life, I realized I don't want to run away. I might not wear a keeper or go to synagogue, but I'm going to search for God. This is one of the most secular famous people in Israel who said, I'm going to start searching for God and for the identity that for so many years people tried to destroy and I almost destroyed with my own hands. He said, for the first time this week, I lit Shabbat candles with my kids. I didn't know how to say the blessing. So I said the blessing of the Hanukkah candles because that was the only blessing I knew. And then I prayed and I prayed for the hostages and I prayed for the soldiers and I prayed for us. And there's just waves of stories like this, story after story, because that is our superpower. What David is revealing to us in this psalm is that this is our superpower. While our enemies dream of 72 virgins in heaven, we're not driven for what is in it for us, but for the, you know, the deepest yearning of our soul, what we dream of when everything is stripped away from us of just feeling Hashem's love and having a relationship with him. And that's our secret power that awakens in exactly these moments when Hashem tests us the hardest. It awakens something in our soul that calls us back to him. So maybe we merit that, you know, even in these times, we'll choose Hashem's 
way and feel Hashem's love, no matter how hard the tests we have to endure along the way. And maybe in the merit of those fighting and of those who are gone, we can pray this psalm together, each of us, you know, wherever we are in the world and find uh, strength and courage. Okay, so with that, my good friend and Rabbi Ari Abramowitz. Bye, guys. Shalom, everybody. It, it is so good to see you. Um, I see a lot of smiles and a lot of tears. Uh, Tehillah has that effect on people. Um, I can't even tell you how much Tehillah and Jeremy have been a source of strength and encouragement uh, for Shana and I um, and our family. It's been it's it's a very big deal. So uh, so I, I have some things on my heart that I want to to share. Uh, Tabitha, just you know, it just goes so perfectly with Tehillah's piece. I, uh, do you have that clip stronger? Can you play that? So I have a confession. And I think it's going to be true for a lot of Jews out there. And it's it's a big lesson for you Jew haters. So I suggest you listen, all you anti-Zionists. Growing up, my Jewish identity was a completely secondary part of my life. I never even thought about it, really. You know, my parents had told me stories about what they went through. My mom had to escape Iraq because she was a Jew. And my dad, sadly, most of his family was killed off in the Holocaust. But I never personalized it. It was never something that was super, super real to me. And it was just stories of things that they went through. But then after October 7th, seeing the way the world responded to the attack and the amount of Jew hatred that actually exists kind of woke up my Jewish side, made me reconnect with it fully. And I think people don't realize just how many Jews out there have reconnected with their Jewish identities now. You know, we were disappearing. We were marrying non-Jews at exceptional numbers. Most of us don't follow the religion. I mean, look at me, I'm covered in tats. And now so many of us are activated. You strengthen us when you attack us. We were disappearing. So I have to say thank you to everyone who has reminded all of us Jews what it actually means to be Jewish. Thank you for showing us the true face of anti-Semitism. And thank you for uniting us once again, because I promise you, we're stronger than ever. So, uh, right, that's a powerful testimony there. And, and there's really truth to that. I've been, I spent the Shabbat at my uh, sister's house. It was my... Uh, my birthday, Shabbat. We all have our birthdays around the same time. And so it was my birthday, Shabbat. And Shana made me a wonderful, beautiful cake with a big lion on it. I should show you the picture of it. It's so, it's so cool. But, um, you know, we I was trying to tell my sister, who's really struggling, like we all are, with the evil and good and how this is and what Hashem is doing. And I was just trying to explain to her that ain't od mil vado, there's nothing but Hashem. And everything is good, even if it's so far beyond what our human mortal mind could possibly grasp, that everything is good, including what's happening to us, it's happening for us. And she was struggling with that. And and this is just a very, very small example, you know, and you have to be careful saying things like that, considering the horrific tragedies, the orphans, the widows, the kidnapped, the trauma that an entire nation is going through. Um, you got to be careful saying it's all for the good, but uh, we're just us here, the fellowship, we're a family here, and we're we're at the place where you can understand what I'm saying right now. And that's just a small example of that. And, and I want to talk to you about how this is all for the good. Um, and I want to talk to you about what we're facing right now at the farm in specific. You know, a lot of you have been reaching out saying I'm reading articles that something happened at the farm, what's going on? So I wanted to talk about that. But before I do, I just want to start with the Torah portion, because these portions are so rich and we're, there's so much happening. I, never in my life have I, has it been such a struggle for me to learn, to sit down and to learn Torah. I feel like between guarding and patrolling and my family and everything that we're going through, it's just so hard. And I know I'm not alone. I speak to my friends and they say that also. But, you know, and, and so I'm trying to forgive myself. But ultimately, we really need to learn. Uh, we need to learn Torah now because it's the blueprint for us. It's it's guiding us uh, through everything that we're going through right now, everything we've been through up until now, and everything we will go through up until now. And the Torah portion really speaks to us. And in some ways, the this Torah portion was somewhat of a consolation uh, for me just at the very end when it says that, you know, that Isaac and Ishmael buried their father, Abraham, together. And it says that only will there be able to be truly be peace when Ishmael comes and proactively, voluntarily, through a place of understanding, sort of yields the, the way and says, this is my brother Isaac. He was the chosen of my father. And then we could turn and say, well, you were chosen 
as well. We're, we're all chosen, but we're chosen to tell you how chosen you are. And so you see reconciliation there. And that gave me a glimmer of hope because it feels like we're so far from that right now. So far from that. It's hard for me to even imagine what reconciliation would look like. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around it because I just don't know how we can possibly go back to the level of coexistence that we had before. You know, if if the, the nearby settlement of Iban Nachal, you know, there were there was Arab construction building the homes there, right next to my daughter Dvash's kindergarten, and it always made me uncomfortable. And I was constantly going and checking and making sure that the guard there was vigilant and whatever. We're gonna go back to that now. Who's gonna let that happen? Who's got how, who who's, who who has the trust that they just won't go in and butcher babies? I don't know how we're gonna go back to what it was. But, uh, but this week's Torah portion, it gives us that sort of hope at the very end. And so this week's Torah portion is called Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah, because it starts with a conclusion of Sarah's life, right? This is one of the verses I memorized since I was a little boy because my rabbi was teaching us a certain methodology we've talked about in the past of memorizing the Torah. So we would sing it together. Chaye Sarah, and the life of Sarah was Me'ashanim, 100 years anyways we would sing it together and so that it has a special place in my heart we learn about sarah's life because she left the world at the beginning of this week's torah portion and abraham i'm going to try to make it a little tighter because i see i'm already running out of time but um abraham goes and purchases for her a plot uh in in hebron called ma'arat Machpelah, right the cave of Machpelah. And it's actually a beautiful, uh, we have a beautiful piece of art, Shana and I do, behind our Shabbat table, uh, done by the famous uh, Baruch Nachshon. Shana's parents gave it to us for uh, for our, our wedding as a gift. And it says it right there, it quotes the Midrash. It says, Shlosha mekamot, she'ein umot ha'olam yecholim lomar, gazaltem him. There's three places that the nations of the world cannot say that we stole from them. Right. So let's just take a step back through prophecy. Abraham knew that this Hebron was the divinely selected place where the where the mamas and the papas, the forefathers and our foremothers would be buried. I don't know if that's a word foremothers. Um, this is where Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebecca, Jacob and Leah would be buried were buried. And of course, we know the famous faith belief that we have that Adam and Eve were also buried there as well. And it's on some level, it's the entrance to the Garden of Eden, whatever that means. We don't fully understand that. We, of course, know Rachel was buried on the road between Bethlehem and Ephrata, where she weeps for her children on the spiritual dimension to this very day, I think at this very moment. So um, so this rabbi in Modin, Rav Sobel, shared a very uh, important idea about these cities. So he was, he was saying that um, the Western thinking tends to focus on the conflict um, in the world of through a prism of finances, right? And materialism, everything is about money. Everything's about money and the inequality or inequity of money or whatever. And that's what it's all about. And if you just throw enough money at anything, then you can solve it. And I think they're, of course, projecting their own Western culture on this, uh, on the world, you know, just, projecting their own hierarchy of values and force-fitting that to the rest of the world and insisting the world is exactly like them. And there's a certain arrogance that's part of the human condition, but particularly in, in the West. But our enemies, he pointed out, can't be bribed or or bought, right? So this the Midrash says that there's three cities that we cannot, uh, that our enemies cannot say that we stole from them. Because in the Torah itself, it, te it teaches as we see that they were purchased for good money. Shechem, uh, the city of Shechem, uh, the Temple Mount, and Hebron. And in this week's Torah portion, we learn about Hebron. So they were purchased for money. So we, our enemies can't say that, that we stole it from them. But it's exactly those cities that they're focusing on and saying that we stole from them. And uh, because uh, the enemies we're dealing with right now are enemies, they can't be bribed or bought out. Maybe for a few weeks or so, or for a few months, they will delay their genocidal plans for the right financial incentive. But only they're only taking that incentive in order to further their final goal, which is the wholesale 
genocide of the nation of Israel. They're so single-mindedly focused in the most obsessive way imaginable on murdering every single Jew. Just that alone, we should look and say this is obviously and clearly a spiritual war. This isn't about their level of financial stability in Gaza. That's just so ridiculous. You know, the they're focusing on wiping us out, and of course the rest of the infidel shortly thereafter, but their focus right now is, is on the nation of Israel. And, you know, I've been watching the, the the narratives of our enemies, and I listen to their arguments, and they say Gaza is an open-air prison, and they've been oppressed, and they want their own state. And somehow in their twisted minds, right, this can somehow explain and justify the most savage evil of putting a baby in an oven while raping the mother to the cries and shrieks of her dying, burning baby. I'm sorry that I'm saying this, but we have to keep it alive within us. We can't forget how savage and evil and sick and dark and twisted they are. And that's just one of the thousands of examples. And, you know, so that we hear the world, the world explaining this stuff away, justifying it, whitewashing uh, possibly the greatest evil the world has ever seen, right? And, and I just don't even know how to, how to come to terms with that. But so, so Jews are coming to terms that we're dealing with an extraordinarily dark spiritual force who revels and celebrates murder and torture and absolute horror, and that this is a spiritual war, and the world may not see it. They may buy the very simple, shallow TikTok posts, but this spiritual force has already declared war on every single infidel in the world. And the Jewish people are simply the vanguard. We're simply the tip of the spear, the, the front lines in the battle against evil on behalf of all of humanity. One of the greatest pleasures of my life, which is to bless all of you. You're such an unbelievable, extraordinary blessing to us. And now I would like to bless all of you with, of course, the blessing of Aaron, the high priest, blesses the children of Israel every single day. And as you know, I'm not a descendant of Aaron, but uh, I am from the nation of Israel. I am from the Jewish people, and we are a nation of priests. So with that... Yivarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha Ya'er Adonai panav elecha v'yichunecha Yisa Adonai panav elecha v'yisemlecha shalom May Hashem bless and protect you. May He shine His countenance upon you. And may He give you peace. Amen. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.